So, Patty. Yes, Elizabeth. Today's show is about conservation. And it made me think of, stay with me here. Okay. Have you heard the legend of the Gordian Knot? Uh, no. What is that? Okay, so it's basically a story about Alexander the Great. Oh, cool. Okay, legendary Greek ruler and military genius. Man, Mm -hmm. I haven't thought about that guy like since high school or something. Okay, what's the story? What's the story? Okay, so as the story goes, Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. ancient city of Gordium, there was this cart or a wagon, and it was tied with this really crazy series of knots. Okay. And it was said that anyone who could untie them all would be destined to become the ruler of all of Asia. Ooh. So, yeah, when Alexander the Great entered town, he decided that he would be the one to untie the knots because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a nice prophecy. Right. So he tried and it didn't go that well. Okay. And then he supposedly stepped back and said, it makes no difference how the knot is loosened. And then there are two alternating versions of what happened next. So in one, he used his sword to cut the knot. <laughs> That's not untying a knot. Well, he said loosening, so. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, and then in the other, he untied the rope from the carter wagon so that he had that end that he could more easily feed through to loosen the knot. Uh. But either way, he undid the thing or loosened it, and he went on to conquer a lot of Asia before he died at age 32. But also, like, very accomplished at a young age. You know, I haven't conquered anything. That's not Uh, true. You have conquered the landscape of our friendship. But the point is, in that story, like, either one of those solutions just is, like, so smart. It's a really smart solve, right? Like, good job, Mr. The Great. Thumbs up. So, yeah, the story is basically used as a metaphor for seemingly intractable problems and also for what you just said about creative simple solutions to seemingly hopeless problems like conservation Mm -hmm. so to me it's this and probably to everybody it's this really big topic right and it can be overwhelming to think about all the moving parts and everything that needs attention but our guest today has this elegant answer to this big question of how we're talking with chris morgan There's a good chance you've heard of Chris before or seen him on TV. He's an author and public speaker, an ecologist and conservationist, a podcaster and a filmmaker. He does a lot. And Mm -hmm. he has an idea that we find super thought-provoking. I believe if you save the bear, you save the world. Do bears have superpowers? I mean, are they the Avengers of nature? And what's the link between them and saving Mama Earth? Get ready, pals. This is going to be a hell of a ride. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I was 18 years old and I applied to work on a summer camp. I just wanted to come to America. Something was calling me. Uh When I got the call from the summer camp, kind of did an interview over the phone with me from England. And uh, this voice came on and he said, hey, my name's Ted. I'm from the summer camp in New Hampshire. How is your fishing? 
And I'm like, my fishing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm awesome at fishing. Yeah. I can, I can fish. Wow. We need someone to teach the kids fishing. So I ended up on this <laughs> summer camp supposedly to teach the kids fishing, but I arrived there. And of course, all these kids in Northern New Hampshire are born with a fishing pole in their hand. And I really was totally out of my depth, you know, <laughs> but one day this black bear biologist walked in and I, I honestly hadn't given a thought to bears in my life at that point, no more than anyone else who cuddles them as a, as a kid. Right. And I bugged this guy for a few weeks, a couple of weeks before he ended up relenting. I wanted to, to get out into the field with him. So I basically begged him and he picked me up one night and it was about nine o'clock at night and it was dark. And I thought the guy's just kind of sick of me. He's just going to put a shovel to the back of my head <laughs> and <laughs> throw me in the back of the truck to shut me oh up, God. you know, but he, he did. And I jumped in his truck and, and we got to the, the gate, you know, the gate of the summer camp. And instead of taking a left in towards the forest. He took a right towards town. Yeah. And I said, where are we going? He goes, we're going to my study site. And he pulled up at the garbage dump. And at this garbage dump were these 14 black bears all lit by moonlight. Oh, wow. And I'm like, it, there was something deeply romantic about it almost, you know. And, really? uh, it deeply just romantic? My... Like these bears just bathing in moonlight, but they're, <laughs> they're on these giant piles of trash. And you're like, oh, how majestic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the wrong word. I, I don't know. But something something about that scene just kind of grabbed me, you know. So this guy was doing local research and I was there to help him. So he tranquilized a few of these black bears. And uh -huh. I just remember this moment of, of running up over the brow of this hill under this moonlight, like something out of the Second World War, jumping out of a trench after he tranquilized this bear with a rifle, yeah. running after these bears so he didn't lose track of them in the darkness because they've got a dart in their ass at this point, right. and they're off. And I'm running through this garbage dump going, this is the, this is the happiest I've ever been in my life. I, this is what I want to do, you know? So That is, that is <laughs> remarkable and hilarious all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of where it started. After that first exposure to field work, Bears took over Chris's life. He changed his college major from graphic design to ecology, and he went on research trips all over the world. On one of those trips, he landed on an idea that would change the direction of his career. I lagged my way onto this project in the Pakistani Himalayas on the border of Kashmir in about it was about 1994, and these guys were at this bear conference giving a presentation about these bears in the, the highest plateau in the world, 14,000 feet, and I couldn't believe it. I went up to them afterwards and, and started talking to them, got onto this project, got a small grant to pay my way, and, and basically volunteered my time onto this project. And I get to the Pakistani Himalayas, and you know we cruise up to this plateau at 14,000 feet where these bears live. And we get there, and I get altitude sickness and diarrhea, jardia, all at once. <laughs> it was like the, oh, most, wow. the most miserable week of my life. <laughs> you, know, you jump up because you've got diarrhea to deal with, and you've got to run to the hole in the ground, right? The latrine that's, that's 100 yards from your tent. And as you do, your brain is trying to explode out of your ears because of the altitude sickness. It was miserable. But I, I get to this setting, and there's all these guys on this team, about five or six of them. And they sit me down in the mess tent. And the, the two main guys are like, okay, uh, here you are, Chris. Welcome to Pakistan. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of nervous and excited all at once and want to learn from these bear biologists. And they start asking me these questions about bears. And I was confused because I'd just seen them at this bear conference talking about bears. So they said, tell us all about bears, Chris. And, and I said, okay, well, they're just testing me out, you know. And I said, well, bears are carnivores. And he said, wait a minute. Bears are carnivores? And I said, yeah, bears are 
carnivals. You know that. You're a bear biologist. And he said, oh, no, I'm a dentist. <laughs> and, and Vakar here is a chemical engineer. So this dentist and this chemical engineer had gotten together. They'd heard about this endangered Himalayan brown bear population that lives at 18,000 feet under the shadow of K2 mm -hmm. and wanted to save them. And it was one of these crystallizing moments where I'm like, holy smokes, these guys aren't scientists that have set about this for their life. They're people who have been inspired by these bears as dentists and chemical engineers, and they, they want to save them. Mm -hmm. It was amazing to me, you know, that, that moment of realization. But then... I realized that not many scientists were talking about bears and that there was a there was something to talk about there. There was something to share with the world about how these bears can help us save wild areas. And so that got me into the idea of doing films and media stuff and spending as much time as I could in the wild, but also telling those stories. And I loved telling those stories because they were rich and powerful and meaningful, but also had an end result of, uh, holy shit, we've got to save this place we call home, you know? Yeah. We've got to do what we can. And I'd stumbled across a family of animals that could help us with that. So far in his career, Chris has worked on nearly 50 films and television programs, which is astounding. And it is also painful. My hand cramped while I was scrolling on his IMBD page. Aren't you a writer who spends all day on his computer? I have like noodly Irish arms. Okay, well... <laughs> Chris says his first film project, called Bear Trek, opened up doors to the mainstream media. So the culmination of Bear Trek is what these three characters are doing now. It's Sute Wong in Borneo, who's studying one of the most elusive species in the world, sun bears down there, and he was this solo champion. Spoiler alerts, I won't give anything away, but you know he's done amazing <laughs> things along the way. There's a lady named Robin Appleton, who's kind of like the Diane Fossey of spectacle bears in Peru, mm -hmm. and she's helped to create a national park to preserve these bears all during the lifetime of, of us making Bear Trek. Nick Lunn, who's studying uh, polar bears up in Canada in Churchill in, on the Hudson Bay, uh, his work has revealed a lot of these connections with polar bears and climate change, and we've supported him along the way, where we took some of it, some of our content, to, the, uh, to a wildlife film festival in Montana. So I showed some of these clips, started just talking like I do about bears, and in the audience were a couple of executives, one from National Geographic and, and one from PBS Nature. And I, I didn't know they were there, and they came up to me afterwards, and Joe Pontecorvo, the guy that was filming and producing Bear Track, and uh, they said, wow, what are you doing for this next little while? We'd love to talk to you about doing some projects. And um, I was blown away, and, and uh, I think Joe, Joe and I both looked at each other and said, "We're doing nothing. We're doing nothing. What do you want? We'll do anything you want." You know, it's like so. It was this open door, and uh, so we ended up creating a three-part series for PBS Nature about Alaska's bears, uh -huh. uh, and it was somewhat modeled a little bit on bear track. I was on the back of a motorcycle. It was a big journey across the state to find polar bears, black bears, and grizzly bears, and the people along the way, and sort of tease apart what their lives are. What was your goal? What did you find? Alaska's kind of like this microcosm where you've got these three species. And in places, it's like the world never changed. Like Katmai National Park on the Alaska Peninsula, where we filmed the whole first episode, is among these giant bears. Uh, a female in particular, Nadi, that we got to know, had cubs that year we were there. She in one scene, she brings these cubs so close to us, it's mind-blowing, but it was her decision to do it, and it was just 
an example of, of us immersing into a wild place and letting the animals call the shots. And in this one situation, she's 200 yards away and she walks with her cubs, grazing as she went on the sedge meadows. Uh, just ended up four or five feet away from us and we filmed the whole thing. It was startling just how brazen she was, but not at all aggressive. And what she was doing was teaching those cubs about these hairless bipeds that we are. So she stopped right in front of us. Just You can hear it in the film. She's just crunching on the on the sedges in front of us. And the little cubs, and, you know, they're the size of a teddy bear at this point, there's cubs of the year. And they're standing on their back legs and looking at us like eyes like saucers, like, what are these, mom? You know? <laughs> and we're just still and calm and sitting down, and I'm talking to the cubs and talking to the bears and talking to the mom and making sure that, that, that nothing untoward unfolds and just trusting that she's just teaching these cubs about us. And she goes about her way. And, uh, and in that situation, it was very much this, okay, here's a place that's not changed for 10,000 years. Wow. These massive brown bears feeding on sedge meadows, feeding on salmon, doing what they do every day of their lives, whether we're there to watch them or film them or not. It's just, it's an exquisite feeling being in that kind of environment. It's totally recalibrating. The last thing you're thinking about is emails and phones and messages, right? And then we end up on the North Slope with polar bears, which was just oh, a magical experience going out with Inupiat Eskimos there to search for, for polar bears and a whole other um, level of, of experience. Yeah, yeah. And then other parts of the journey, we're like, we ended up in Anchorage, where there's grizzlies and black bears within the city limits of Anchorage in no small numbers either, mm. and moose. And so there it's like this, it's like back to the garbage dump thing. It's like the human wildlife dimension. In 2000, Chris founded a program called the Grizzly Bear Outreach Project. Its purpose is to help educate people and communities that border bear habitats. Chris wanted to expose and destroy historic fallacies about his beloved bears. For example, the idea that people and bears can't live side by side. And he also wanted to show the impact of human activity. For instance, the stark difference between bear populations where he lives in the North Cascades and where he works like Alaska. People have seen grizzlies and they've been well documented here, but not very recently. You get to the coast of Alaska and, oh, my God, you can't get off the skiff onto the beach without treading over a bear track that's got a wolf track sitting in the middle of it. You know, it's wow. just the, this order of magnitude more wild. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few reasons for it. It's the isolation of the place. There's no roads there. You've got to take a float plane to get in there. Um, it's, so it's inaccessible. But it's also a really healthy habitat for bears there. You know, there's lots of these sedge meadows. There's tons of salmon during the salmon run season. So it's like the life of plenty for a bear there. Whereas as here in the North Cascades, they were pushed into those mountains of ice and rock, and it's not an awesome place to be. They used to be out, even the Rocky Mountain bears, are prairie animals, you know. They were pushed into these mountains by humans because we wanted the prairies, we wanted the valleys, right. we wanted the things that those brought, you know, whether it was timber or our own hunting opportunities or a place to build a home. And so as this frontier of people poured westward, the grizzly bears were the first things to go. I mean, even Lewis and Clark commented on it. They were running into black bears until they got halfway across the continent, and they're like, holy shit, what are these big things? That's no black bear. And there were, they had altercations and run-ins with these aggressive grizzly bears. There were nothing like the black bears they'd become used to. And so that psychology didn't help grizzlies. Mm -hmm. They were persecuted because of that as much as anything else. So thankfully, places like Alaska, places like northern Russia, Kamchatka, places that are wild enough to sustain these bears are still there, although Kamchatka has its issues with poaching. But, you know, we need these wild places. And 
they don't appear by magic, you know. Thank God we have Yellowstone. I mean, right. if you look at a map of grizzly bear distribution in the lower 48 now, there's this island. It looks like this little blob in the middle of the northwest, and it's not connected to anything else, and it's Yellowstone National Park. And if that place wasn't set up in 1872 by people that were smart enough to think this is special, we need to, you know, protect this, it wouldn't be there today, right? So I, there's a complacency that comes sometimes, I think, with what we need to do, and, and, and it shouldn't creep in. It's a dangerous thing, you know. We, we have to protect these wild places for, for the bears and, and other animals and ourselves. So why is conservation worthwhile? We're screwed without it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, agreed. <laughs> Honestly, I think if we can't manage the biodiversity crisis and with it mm-hmm. climate change and everything, and it's all interrelated, then, you know, there isn't much of a future for us. You know, some scientists think that there isn't much of a future for humans anyway, you know, that we've got a limited number of hundred years to persist on this planet unless we find some really good solutions very quickly. And some people find that depressing. I don't. I just look at it as a scientist and think, hmm, it's a bit of a colder side to my scientific brain where I'm thinking, I love humans, but we're fooling ourselves if we think we've been here forever and we think we're going to be here forever. Um, But we operate like that. And uh, so I think conservation is necessary. We need these wild places and these natural resources that we all depend upon in order to survive. So how does Chris show people the link between bears and saving the planet? He dresses down conservation and he takes folks into the field to expose them to the beauty of these amazing animals. I think, you know, making conservation a a social norm is, I think that is... uh, it's a it's a big ask. It's a big societal, cultural shift. I think the word conservation, I think it needs to be rebranded. The word conservation has often got negative connotations, hasn't it? It's like, oh, back to the sky's falling. Whereas my conservation has been adventure, enlightenment, amazing experiences, incredible friendships and people, wild places, uh, life-changing things. I've been very lucky. That's been my conservation. I love getting through to the real stuff in people. And, you know, when I take people into bear country and they see a grizzly bear for the first time and, you know, they're busy, crazy, like partly clinically insane business executives (laughs) who just don't know whether they're coming or going most days, you know, because they've got so much going on, to turn around and see them literally in tears rolling down their eyes and not speaking for an hour because there's a grizzly bear. 30 feet away from them is is incredibly special you know it's yeah. it's uh, it's really meaningful and touching isn't it when you get to change someone's perspective of something or listen to them enough to understand their perspective yeah. and i think so much of wildlife conservation comes down to that of all of us listening to each other's perspectives where you, whether you're a tree hugger or a trophy hunter right. there's a lot of ground in between there uh, that equates to the love of nature and wildlife and i i think what i'm trying to do by reconnecting people with nature is having them fall in love with something that they think they already love but taking it to another level of love And then when someone loves something, they get more and more curious about it. And then the curiosity builds and then they want to protect it. And it's the exact same journey I've been on in my life. You know, it's I have these pictures of myself when I was three years old of uh, playing with ants in my grandma's backyard. Everyone else in the family is inside grandma's house having dinner. And I'm (laughs) my dad came out and took a picture of me playing with ants. (laughs) And it started off just as that curious childlike wonder that I think we've all got, but somehow society beats it out of most people. 
But we need to carry on that thread of that curiosity about ants and snails and slugs and birds and whatever else is that we're fascinated by as a kid and then turn that into love, turn that into impact and, and you know, ultimately do amazing things for the wildlife and for ourselves if we can, if we can follow that through. Why is that connection, that communion with the wild, when we feel that internally, individually, why is that good for the planet? Because bears represent wilderness so well, especially a grizzly bear. When you're in grizzly bear country, there's something about that recalibration that takes us back to what we formerly were, which is a slightly less so-called evolved version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think if you scratch beneath the surface just a tiny depth layer, you, then you find that we're just hairless apes at the end of the day. <laughs> and I, and I, I, don't think, I don't think most of our beings as humans has evolved much beyond that. But we fool ourselves into thinking that we have, right? Hmm. So we've created this busy cluttered world around ourselves that most of us can't keep up with yeah and when our inner hairless ape really just wants to sit in a forest quietly and listen to the birds and come to terms with things you know time in the wild is good for you and it's not just a tree hugger thing it's not just feeling good about being out in fresh air or getting exercise it's actually it's it's a physiological response to being outside it's actually really good for your health this time in the wild, this time in nature, even if it's just sitting under a tree in your local park at lunchtime, I think recalibrates us as humans on an individual level. And now, and then imagine multiplying that by many billions. It can mm. only recalibrate us as a species if it's done regularly, you know, if it's done in the right way. I think it just opens hearts and minds to getting along with each other and to... to being a different kind of human, you know, that the, the human society, the homo sapiens society that we could be, um, comes through time in nature. I know that's a big statement, um, but I, I firmly believe it. I see it in people all the time and I, I, I know you do. And it's just, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful thing that's hard to put your finger on, but yeah, it's there. Coming up after the break, Chris exposes bear power. For Chris, the love of bears is twofold. Sure, they're majestic, hulking animals that are really cool to watch and film, but it's also how their survival is tied to ours. You know, there's eight bear species around the world, and they're all amazing, uh, characterful, almost caricature species, you know, that people are drawn to and love, and they, they look at and think that they're cute and cuddly or smart and dangerous, or, you know, there's very few people have no emotion about some kind of bear species around the world. Mm-hmm. So they draw people in. But They're also found in lots of different places around the world, you know, on many different continents. And if you put that bear family together, eight bear species around the world, if you were to put that bear family together and protect their needs, because they all need large areas of land and resources and all the rest of it, then you'd end up protecting a third of the Earth's land surface. So eight bear species can help us protect a third of the Earth's land surface. And it's a super powerful notion to get you beyond, oh, these are just cute, cuddly, interesting, powerful, dangerous animals. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. in this day and age, we need these tools to figure out, well, you know, we all know the sky's falling, but, you know, as an optimist and a pragmatist, I'm always looking for ways to, you know, hold the sky up. And I think the bears provide a really good tool for that, you know, protect them. We protect 
clean air, natural resources, forests, mountains, fresh water, all the things that I'd argue we need as human beings. And, and there's no arguing with that, right? We all need those things. So if you start protecting the bears of the world, you address all of those things concurrently in a really cool way. But the exterior is this fluffy, amazing, beautiful, intelligent, spiritual animal that people can fall in love with and devote themselves to. So yeah, it all it trickles down. It all trickles down from bears, man. <laughs> <laughs> Two hundred years ago, there was anywhere between fifty to a hundred thousand grizzly bears in the lower forty-eight. Today, they're around fourteen hundred. That is an astonishing, shocking decrease. It is mind blowing, isn't it? I think about that that figure a lot. On the one hand, it's, it makes you think how. Are we capable of that level of annihilation? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it makes you think, man, if we're capable of that kind of level of destruction, imagine what we're capable of if we were to turn the tables and go, hey, let's shift things around and do the opposite. And some amazing things have happened in, in, in wildlife and conservation like that is, is rewilding. You know, there's lots of great rewilding stories around the world. Wildlife stories of of success where the, these species are coming back. The grizzlies in North America, I mean, I'm sitting on the edge of the North Cascades here where I live, and uh, if we're lucky, there's there's four or five bears there. Um, and there used to be hundreds in the North Cascades. Wow. And it was, it's been habitat loss, it's been direct persecution, you know, rifles, it's been um, a culmination of all kinds of th persecution of these animals because we don't believe we can live alongside them, which is not true. We can if we just adjust our ways a little bit. So all kinds of things wiped these animals out. And uh, it doesn't take too many adjustments to make room for them back on the landscape again. Does that decrease represent or signify something? I mean, what's the danger there? I think it represents... Oh, this is a crazy thing to say. I was thinking about it this week with Notre Dame, right? That The fire that's happened this week, and they've raised a billion dollars in a day and a half. I know. That's amazing, isn't it? What people can be shifted Before into. Before the fire was even out, people were pledging. Right. And it's a fire that happened overnight, and it's urgent, and it's a piece of history, and that's great. Okay, a, yeah. a billion dollars in a day and a half. But the same thing is happening all around us in our natural world on the planet, and we're not forced into that. That It's not a forcing function to save it. You know, where's the billion dollars a day for saving the planet we all depend upon? Now, it's not a criticism necessarily, but it's a really interesting observation, isn't it? I love the psychology of human cultural shift, you know, and... What's it going to take for us to move on as a species, you know? Um, it's a tricky nut to crack, but I do, I do find it fascinating. I think, I, I often say, you know, bear conservation, and especially grizzly bear conservation, is, you know, 90% human psychology, the 10%, the bears, the ecology, the space they need, the, the habitat quality that they need, that'll take care of itself. It's there. It's there in the North Cascades, 10,000 square miles of it. But the human psychology of bringing those bears back and allowing them to flourish again, that's the obstacle. And it's a fun but tormenting nut to crack, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've dedicated over 20 years of your life to this work. And I, I would probably bet it's safe to assume that the remainder of your days are going to be spent doing the same. Have you had to give anything up personally 
for this work. You know, when when we're compare when we're compelled to dedicate our lives to a cause, is there a cost incurred? Do we lose something? Mm-hmm. I, I um I think about that a lot. Mm, sorry. <clears throat> you know, I'm a uh, I'm a dad. Uh, my family's important to me. My friends are important to me. Uh, sometimes I think when you, I don't know, I think I see it in, in a lot of people around me, you know, that they, they get, uh, you get so hyper-focused on the mission that you think is is the most important thing in the world. And it's most important thing in the world to me and my kids, right? Yeah. You know, and I want to be a, an amazing dad. And uh, want to leave time for that, and and uh, um, sufficient time to be a really good dad. And sometimes um, it's a tricky balance, you know. At the end of the day, I'm self-employed as well, and I've got to hustle like any of us to make a living, pay the bills, and stay dedicated to my cause and mission, which will never go away. And balance being a dad and a parent and a and a, a partner and a you know a cousin and all the rest of it. And uh, Sometimes that's, sometimes that's a, um, it's a, it's a struggle, that balance. Uh, yeah. Well, in that exchange, you know, in that dedication, what's gained? Waking up every day thinking this is all I ever want to do because it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do. And I tell my kids that all the time. Be kind wake up every day doing the right thing to those and for those around you in the place that you live in and uh, listen to people. And I think my work involves all of those things and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. So I think that when we as a community, when we hear about saving the planet, right, we think of climate change, we think of global warming and public lands and wilderness protections, we think about the monkey wrench gang and protesting mining, fighting against the gas and oil industry, you know. So why do you think we should put saving bears at the top of our mental list? (laughs) <laughs> is it is it the top of yours now, Paddy? I'm you're doing a pretty damn good job, Chris. <laughs> Did I brainwashing is complete almost? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Before I started researching for this interview, if you would have said, you know, bears, Patty, bears, what I immediately would have thought as you know, a person who grew up in Chicago, I would have thought of the Chicago Bears, right? I'd think of Mike Ditka. I'd think of Mike Singletary. I would have thought of Mike O'Connell, my father, screaming at the television like, these idiots are going to lose this game, you know? And and so what do you want the listeners to learn from this and to start to think about? I think whether it's bears or elephants or ants, that you're interested in or fascinated by or curious about, and you might not actually know what it is, right? I think it's a case of just going on a little bit of a journey of self-discovery and finding out what grabs you. Take a walk in the park and think about it and see what you gravitate towards and, and share it with your kids, with your friends, with your neighbors. And that sounds corny and cliched, but my God, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You know, it's like sharing it as a human community with each other. Why is ecology not taught in kindergarten? You know, from the, from the day a kid can learn something, why are they not learning about how our planet functions? And how we're a part of that giant complex jigsaw puzzle that if you take a piece out of it, the rest can fall apart and be incomplete. You know, it's 
It's little things like that is shifting our mindset. I think about this stuff every day when I get up, you know, and I'll stop dead in my tracks, even walking through a city. If there's a bird singing on the branch of a tree and I'll stop and look up at this bird singing and people will be just buzzing by me like some weird time lapse, you know, (laughs) occasionally someone will stop and I'm like, oh, you got the nature gene too? (laughs) You know, we've, we've all got this nature gene, but it's a case of us nurturing it in ourselves and in each other. So go out and do that, you know. Chris, I only have one more question for you. If you had to pick one, which is your favorite bear? (laughs) <laughs> I should have seen that coming. This, got... this is probably the hardest question of the entire interview. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, it's not. I am drawn towards grizzly bears in a big way. It's not difficult for you? Boom, just like that? Yeah. Well, I guess that's true for me, too. You know my, my favorite bear? What is it? Walter Payton. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing I have said meant anything to you, Patty? No, you totally have had an impact on me. I want to let you know that I'm going to buy a bear costume and I will be moving to the PNW. So if you see a bear, if you see a grizzly bear with a mustache going through your trash like later this week, please don't shoot that bear because that bear is me. Okay. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Chris Morgan. And to learn more about what he's doing, check out his Instagram, at chrismorganwildlife, and his website, chrismorganwildlife.org. Chris just launched a brand new podcast, The Wild, with our friends at KUOW. The show takes you all over the world to explore the beauty of the outdoors and its inhabitants. Find The Wild wherever you get your podcasts. If you like today's show, then please, spread the word. You know, Safety Third is kind of like a Segway tour. It's a little weird by yourself, but in a group, it's cool. It makes sense. So snag your crew and enjoy the weirdness together. Tell your friends and fam. And if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Cordelia Zars edited this episode. Additional production help from David Brown at Spinner Studio. Music by my big brother, Brendan. My food choices are about judging people, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember, safety third. Safety third.